On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about something that you probably don't know exists in this country because you probably wish it didn't exist in this country. Child marriage. It is legal in Canada. Doesn't make sense, but we'll talk about it. Uh, We're also going to be chatting about real estate in Hamilton. Uh, There's a new report out that says this city is about to explode again as it comes to real estate prices. I thought that had already happened. Apparently not enough. Prices are about to go up and up and up, and you may not expect where the hotspots in this city are going to be. We'll tell you about it. And... The U.S. World Cup women's soccer team had a tremendous first game and then went and screwed the whole thing up with a bunch of behavior that has made them pretty much hated by many people, although defended by others. We're going to talk about that and whether they deserve the flack they're taking. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A few weeks back, you might uh, remember here on the show that we had Dr. Eve on the show. She was an obstetrician gynecologist who works with a group called Save the Mothers in Uganda. And I mention her again because one of the things that she mentioned during, because of one of the things that she mentioned during her time here, uh, and that was young girls, children being forced into marriage over there in the developing world. It is a massive problem. Young girls who don't have a choice being told you will get married. And you hear this story and it was explained to us if you were listening last week or the week before when Dr. Eve was on here. And probably if you were like me, you were thinking to yourself, man, you know, we need to get some of uh, some stuff, some thoughts, some philosophy, some different thinking over to some parts of the developing world to stop this kind of thing, because it would never happen here. Well, Let's not be quite so pious at this point because it turns out child marriage does happen here in Canada. I had no idea about this. Uh, I was shocked to learn this week it's not done secretly or it's not done tucked away from the spotlight. It is apparently legal. How this is the case, I have no idea, but I know who does. Dr. Alyssa Kosky is an assistant professor at McGill's University's Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health. She's at the Center on Population Dynamics. Much of her study is on women's health and well-being in low-income countries. Uh, this is an issue, apparently, Dr. Kosky, that translates over into Canada as well. I was shocked by this. That's right, Scott. Uh, most of my work on this issue and most work in general on this issue is focused in parts of the world like Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, which is what most Canadians perceive when they think of child marriage. They think of a practice that occurs somewhere else. But it is the case that child marriage is legal throughout Canada. And not to be too ridiculous or to try and parse this too much, but when you say legal, not a crazy play it on some sort of fringe of legality, like it's really legal here? The Civil Marriage Act, which is a federal act, allows 16 and 17-year-olds to legally marry if they have their parents' permission. And the United Nations defines child marriage as any marriage under the age of 18. So there's a discrepancy there. What, uh, does it have to be, if you're a 16-year-old, do you have to be getting married to someone else who is 16 or 17, or could you be marrying a 30-year-old? You could be marrying someone substantially older. And in fact, what we find when we look across Canada is that girls are far more likely to be married than boys, and that girls actually are wed to substantially older spouses. So what we're talking about here is that in almost 40% of cases, 
girls under the age of 18 are marrying men who are at least five years older than them, and in the most extreme cases, as much as 20 years older than them. I'm failing to understand, though, because if this was just a 16-year-old girl and a 30-year-old man who ran off to have relations, they would he would be charged. How, how are the, if this is the case, how is the adult in this not being charged with statutory rape or something like that? Actually, the age of sexual consent is 16. It is now, okay. Mm-hmm. So does the child, in, in most of the, uh, again, you're, you're teaching me new stuff all along here. Um, in most of these cases, does the child have a say in this? Are we finding that the kids are saying, yeah, I'm all for this, or is this something they are being pushed into? Well, our research doesn't allow us to go into the actual motivations for these marriages at this point, but that is an area where I intend to do future research. I think one of the pressing questions that comes out of this is, who's instigating these marriages? Well, and, and what's, I mean, what's your belief on that? Do you have a theory? Do you, I mean, you must have a suspicion whether this is something that is a true love situation or a, maybe a parental push or something along those lines. Well, anecdotally, if we look to the United States, where a little bit of research on this has been conducted, we see cases in both directions, where in some instances there are young people who push to be married historically, but far more common is the narrative of someone whose parents maybe had a little pressure in the matter and maybe pushed the issue a bit. Are we talking, uh, from what your experience is anecdotally, are we talking about... uh, immigrant or or new people to Canada who are bringing their cultural norms with them? Or are we talking about people who may have lived here, be third, fourth, fifth generation Canadians? Once again, we don't have that information just yet. Another ongoing area of research is to use the Canadian census to learn more about who these children are. At this point, we only know that the marriages are occurring. But I would stress that, you know, these are marriages that are occurring in Canada, So really, regardless of the demographics, this is a practice that Canada is permitting, and it's not restricted to any one particular part of the country. Child marriages have happened in every province and territory over the Hmm. past 20 years. Does it happen often, though? Are there many of these that happen? So it is quite rare relative to other parts of the world. What we're finding is that nationally, approximately one in every 10,000 Canadian children were married in the year 2016. Our federal government, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but our federal government, as part of its outreach to the developing world, has tried to work against this, right? It has tried to encourage countries to not allow this. Am I, am I wrong? You are correct. That's one of the reasons that actually drew me to this work. In 2017, Canada adopted its feminist international assistance policy. And one of the explicitly stated goals of that policy is to fund programs that aim to end child marriage abroad. So it's rather ironic that we have it here still. Agreed. It is, there's a clear discrepancy between what we're advocating abroad and what we're actually doing at home. And when we are advocating for it not to be still carrying on abroad, are we not citing this as some form of a human rights violation? It is widely considered a human rights violation. The United Nations considered it, considers it a human rights violation, and Canada has signed on to a number of human rights documents that acknowledge that. So how are we, how are we missing this? How is this not seen as so ironic that someone has said, well, let's, before we get their house in order, let's get our own in order? I think it's an excellent question. 
And I'm surprised about the lack of reflection that has occurred about the fact that this remains legal domestically. It's something that we're not talking about, and we should be. Do you think most politicians even know it exists? My sense is that it's a blind spot. As part of this research, we also did a systematic review of anything that's ever been written on child marriage in the Canadian context, and we didn't find much at all, except Mm. for a few media reports that were intensely focused on allegations of child marriage among religious minority communities in Canada. But our work shows that the practice is much more widespread um, geographically and in its scale across the country. The, I mean, it's very distasteful. It's very upsetting. But we do know that in parts of the world, this is not, um, it, it would not be unusual for a girl to not choose her husband to be sold into a marriage situation. Do we have any reason, and I'm, I'm hesitant to ask because I really want the answer to be no, but do we have any reason to believe that selling of girls happens here? There's no anecdotal evidence to indicate that selling is a common practice. Uh, There are advocacy groups in Canada who have dealt or addressed the issue of forced marriage among very young girls, Mm. which would indicate more a situation of emotional pressure, perhaps some physical coercion to go along with a marriage. When you tell people, I mean, when the story came out, and it was out in the National Post a few days ago, and I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people who... Uh, you, you've probably heard a lot of comments from this. What, what is the response? Are people shocked like I am that this happens here? Or did most people, am I way behind the curve and everyone else seemed to know this was going on? No, absolutely. The response has been one of deep surprise. Um, as I said, I think it's a blind spot, not only in terms of policy, but in terms of public perception. And that's fueled by foreign policy that actively tells us that this is an issue that needs to be addressed elsewhere while failing to acknowledge that it remains legal in Canada. So despite my complete discomfort with this idea, and I have kids who are now past this age, but I remember what they were like when they were that age, and I'm, it's too difficult to even p- ponder one of them saying, I want to get married when I'm 16, but there would be some 16 or 17-year-olds who I'm assuming truly do want to get married. It's not being forced upon them. Um, what if that was the case? Should we should there be a loophole or an opening left for those people in our country? Well, I think I would go back to the fact that the United Nations does define child marriage, meaning anything under the age of 18, as a human rights abuse. And so Canada has implicitly agreed to that definition by its signing on to a number of these documents. And so what we're generally saying is that you may want to get married, at the age of 17, but perhaps it's not the worst thing in the world if you have to wait until you're 18 and you can make that choice at the age of majority. And it's not an unfamiliar cutoff for Canadians. And it will, and it seems like if you were two 16-year-olds, which again, is just sounds r- ridiculous, but if you were two 16-year-olds, that is a fast track to a life of poverty, you would think. That's true. Um, in general, we find that girls who marry before the age of 18 are dramatically more likely to live in poverty later in life relative to girls who wait to get married. There are other concerns as well. Research from other parts of the world shows that girls who marry early are more likely to experience domestic violence and report a higher number of unintended pregnancies. 
It, it, it is, uh, as I said, I had no idea. Just before I let you go, uh, we obviously are talking about child marriages that happen in this country, but we know also around the world that there are, it's even below 16 in some cases where you will have girls in certain countries that get married off. If, if you were a 13 or a 14 year old from another country and you were trying to come to Canada, would they recognize your marriage? Ooh, that is a good question and one I don't uh, feel qualified to answer. Because <laughs> I'm wondering if you're 12 and you show up here from sub-Saharan Africa and you say, I'm married to this 40-year-old man, if they say, yeah, you're married, or if they say, no, you're not. I'm sorry, but I don't not feel s- qualified to answer. I'm not sure how Immigration Canada would perceive that. It is a uh, it is a disturbing and it's a fascinating topic, and I'm glad you raised it, and I'm glad you've spoken to it, because uh, I think it's good that it gets some airing, and maybe somebody who didn't know before can do something about this. Uh, Dr. Alyssa Kosky from McGill University, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share. Uh, uh, again, hands up if you knew that we have legal child marriage in this country, because I sure didn't. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Money Sense Magazine online just came out with a cross-country look at real estate. And, you know, I probably don't have to ask you to answer this question as any kind of secret quiz or something like that, because I think you know the answer. A headline is where to buy real estate in 2019. Guess what the answer is? Hamilton, Ontario, indeed, as it has been for a while now. According to Money Sense Magazine, this city is ready to explode in real estate. Now, we have heard this for how long? If you've lived here for any period of time, you've said, wait a second, we've already exploded. Well, they're saying lots of room still to grow, money-wise, not necessarily house-wise, running out of space eventually. I want to bring in Judy Marsales of Judy Marsales Real Estate. You see her signs all over the place. You know who she is. Uh, Judy, thanks for doing this today. Well, good evening, Scott. I am absolutely delighted to join you tonight uh, with talking about a subject near and dear to my heart, as you can imagine. Well, of course, and we're glad you're here as well. Though, as I read this, it all seems like it's Groundhog Day. None of this is really new, right? This has just been an (laughs) ongoing explosion. Well, I, I wouldn't call it an explosion per se, what I would say is a renewed interest in a dynamic city. Um, I think we've been undervalued for too long, and our proximity to all of the wonderful aspects of whether it's the escarpment, whether it's the waterfront, whether it's proximity to our big sister up the highway, uh, we have so much to offer that wasn't truly being appreciated. And yet there would be a lot of people, Judy, who would say, wait a sec, Judy, hold on a sec, Uh, held back or or not exploded for so long. I've been trying to get into the market for a while, and I looked at the prices two years ago and now, and I just about had an aneurysm. Uh, I mean, certainly prices have gone up a lot. Yes, they have gone up. And, um, of course, one has to look at the dynamics of the marketplace that you're speaking of. So I would say a year and a half ago, we had a problem with available listings, so the demand... Too, too many or too few? Too few. Okay. So that the demand was encouraging multiple offers, it was encouraging bidding wars and so on. Um, for the buyers out there, I'm happy to say that that aspect of the, dyna- of the market has changed. Having said that, there are still rare occasions where the location might be something very unusual or might be a home that's 
never been on the market before, and it will be subject to multiple offers. Uh, what we are seeing, though, is listings popping up. And I think I shared uh, with a friend the other day that the signs are popping up like the flowers of spring. So it's wonderful news to potential buyers. It's also good for the sellers because it increases the number of people interested just by virtue of watching all this activity and exploring the opportunities here in Hamilton. Are the signs staying up, though, for a few days? Because I have a sister in Toronto who went to buy a house, and like so many people in Toronto, had to pretty much see the house, put in an offer on the house, get into a bidding war on the house, and buy the house in 12 hours. Are we seeing that kind of thing here, or is it a little more sane? It's a little more sane. It's a lot more sane. In fact, in some areas, um, I would say the average days on market are closer to 30 Now, of course, there are some dynamic areas that are only 12, as reported by the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. But by and large, if you look at the averages, I would say 30 days was a a really common number. But again, every house has to be looked at on its own merit. You know, if, if it's a home that hasn't been offered before the last two decades, it may be very attractive to someone or it might have elements of it that perhaps really signal uh, a huge demand. Or it may have bright pink wallpaper throughout the entire house. <laughs> In which well, case, you've got some work to do. Um, <laughs> so this, this magazine, Money Sense, again, when they came out with their, uh, their list, and they've broken it down very specifically, and we'll get to it in just a moment, but uh, they've broken it down by neighborhoods, and I think there was something like 160-something neighborhoods. I didn't even know we had that many neighborhoods in Hamilton, to be honest. But they have said nine of the top 10 best neighborhoods to buy this year are downtown. You agree with that? Um, I would agree with that. Now, what's interesting about what you just said is that very often the consumer does not look at the name associated with a neighborhood. They look at its location and what that immediate area has to offer. And all our maps in the real estate world are numbered in terms of location and area. Mm. So drilling down to neighborhoods is fascinating. But if I may, I think one of the elements that um, we're speaking of right now is, if you can recall a few decades ago, or certainly when I first moved to Hamilton, people were running away from the waterfront. That has changed dramatically. In fact, I will say people are running to the waterfront now. So one of those neighborhoods that's really enjoyed tremendous amount of improvement and increased demand is what we call, uh, well, Bayfront North End. Uh, It's just amazing what's happened. People love that area. Or, for example, Lock Street North. Mm. People love that area as well. And if you go down and look at some of these neighborhoods like Beasley, Lansdale, Central, you know, they are very popular. And again, Scott, in a lot of instances, you know, those houses were underappreciated. Judy, I'm wondering uh, secondarily about the downtown. For a long time, because the prices have been lower in the downtown, you may have to fix it up, but they've been lower. You have a lot of first-time home buyers who are going down there because they can afford it. But are people now who are buying their second and third homes staying downtown, or is it still the same pattern we've had for 30 or 40 years where you start to move to the suburbs once you get a little bigger and get a family and that kind of thing? Well, Scott, it's interesting you say that because there has been a dynamic change. Interestingly enough, we have two demographics looking at the downtown core right now for two different reasons. For example, we have the baby boomers 
who want to move downtown because of the proximity to everything, the ease of getting to where they want to go. And then we have the millennials who don't want to drive anymore. They want to walk. They want to cycle. So they want neighborhoods where they are comfortable. And, of course, if they are young families, they want to be able to walk to schools. And uh, a case in point, of course, is the Duran neighborhood and uh, Cork, uh, Corktown, which is really, really in high demand right now because of all those opportunities. And Kirkendale, uh, same thing. They, the, the two generations really enjoy the neighborhood feel. Not um, everybody, Judy, now I hate to say this, but not everybody is going to know where those neighborhoods are. So <laughs> where is Corktown? Okay, so Corktown is just over, um, let me see, between John Street South, I guess, and Wellington Street, and typically around Young Street, people identify with it, Charlton, um, just by the Claremont, underneath okay. the Claremont there. All right, Kirkendale? And Kirkendale is over by Dundurn Street South, and um, so if you look at the Aberdeen, a little north of Aberdeen Avenue in that area, and then the Durand, of course, is a little further east on the east side of Queen Street around Herkimer, and between the, the escarpment and downtown area, if that helps people. Yep. And then uh, the central neighborhood would be just a little bit north of York Boulevard, uh, again towards Barton Street, and then, of course, the north end is the waterfront, um, Burlington Street East, John Street uh, by the Bayfront, and then we've got Beasley, which is just a bit south of Barton Street, between Barton and Wilson, if you will, near well, between Wellington on the uh, east and James Street North on the west. And then Lansdale also is enjoying some attention these days as well. And if I may, Scott, another neighborhood that's really attracting people is St. Clair. And St. Clair has two things. One, it's got a lower city attraction, but it also has a lot of the heritage homes. And as you know, St. Clair Boulevard was beautiful and still is to this day. But it went through a, a, a you know a challenging time, as many neighborhoods did. But it's coming back off with a tremendous resurgence. So how many of these homes in these areas, because these are not areas that, well, a number of years ago would have been seen as uh, exclusive enclaves. They were maybe a little grittier at times. How, how many of these, when you buy a house there now, are ready to move in, and how many are still needing an awful lot of work if you buy it? Well, it, it depends on two factors, how long the uh, seller has lived in the home. Um, age has a, plays a lot, of, a lot of part of that discussion. Um, and it also depends on whether somebody has bought the property with the express purpose of flipping it. So, In which case, I, you're probably not getting a deal anymore. Well, precisely. I, I would say to you the majority probably need a little bit of updating. Um, and then the, you know, the updating is in the eyes of the beholder, clearly. Everybody has a different view on how they want to do things. Um, and I would say to a lot of homeowners, please do what you are comfortable with. And we need to move away from this concept of brick GICs as our home. Our home should be somewhere we really enjoy and enjoy it as you like it. Uh, we have people sometimes that spend countless dollars doing improvements to the home and then very sadly find out that not 
the buyers don't appreciate it the same mm. as they did. I, I do wonder, um, because this, again, this money sense uh, piece is largely about the neighborhoods that if you want to get a, a good price, a good deal, if you want to be able to find the hot spot right now, uh, I do wonder when this is going to end. Not that people aren't always going to need to buy homes, but there's going to come a point when all these deal homes, these bargain homes are snatched up. And now where do you look? Well, that, that's interesting because over time, neighborhoods change and depends on where people want to live. I mean, think about it way back 40 years ago, people migrated to suburbia, right? Exactly. So that's all changed. And uh, with the downtown, we're going to see an improvement, certainly. And we see people walking more. We see people more interested in proximity to um, social places and schools for the young families. So um, every generation has their own lifestyle requirements. And you know what? Downtown is really generating an amazing buzz these days. I mean, you think about Art Crawl, think about Lock Street, think about Bay Street. You know, it's such a nice feeling. And uh, I think that's also attracting people. That is Judy Marseilles. Uh, you can find her online. You can find her signs. I'm sure if you really want to track her down, you can probably figure out a way to do so. Uh, <laughs> she'd probably love to have your business. Judy, thanks for taking the time today. Well, I really appreciate your interest in Hamilton. And I would say we really need this. Hamilton really needs every pat on the back it can get. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Judy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us go to our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH Sports. Sir, how are you tonight? Not bad. How are you doing? That is very low-key and understated. Usually you come on here like a ball of fire with energy and you you sound like you're you're a little worried about tomorrow night. Um, I did predict seven, so... You did, and I told you that if they win in seven, I was going to deliver a coffee onto the set during the newscast. Um, you know, tomorrow... I don't know if I'll get through security, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Our rock-solid security here. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, that, hey, seniors you know, need jobs, too. Sorry? Seniors need jobs, too. <laughs> I'm going to hang up. <laughs> Um, it, it would be real nice to see um, both the National Hockey League and the you know the NBA close on consecutive nights. Uh, it's been a long journey, it really has for you know hockey, especially. Isn't this weird how hockey started? I believe the tenth of April, and it's going to end today, the playoffs. And I think the NBA started three weeks later. I. And you know what, Bubba? I don't know many people, save for those who are diehards Bruins or Blues fans, and I don't know anyone who's a diehard Blues fan. I saw, actually, at the, at the Canadian Open last week, I saw one guy wearing a Gretzky Blues shirt, and I thought, man, there are four of those in existence, and Wayne has the other three. The guy played, like, 17 games. And yeah. <laughs> but unless you're a fan of one of those teams, do you even know that hockey is still on? I have heard nobody talk about this at all. At all. And and it's one of the rare times ever a game seven in a Stanley Cup, or for that matter, any uh, in any championship game hasn't been getting the sort of pub no. 
that uh, it normally would receive, and especially in uh, our country and especially our area, which I would, you know, you know, respectfully to other places in the country call the hockey hotbed of, of the world. Except for now, when we are the basketball hotbed of the it, world. It, it's all changed, and, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the ratings stack, because you know, you know it's going to be, you know, it's going to happen, because um, TSN have... You know, if you're watching enough in their sports center program, have you know been taking little jabs at the National Hockey League, uh, in the fact that it's sort of playing second fiddle. Not oh yeah, sort of. It is. It playing is playing second, second fiddle, fiddle. Uh, to 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 the NBA right now. Let me ask you an NBA question because today or last night, anyway, within the last 24 hours, the NBA came out and said, you know, uh, in the last minute of Game Five, when Mark Gasol was driving towards the basket with a chance to ta- to give the Raptors the lead late in the game. Uh, he was clobbered by Boogie Cousins, and a foul should have been called. And anyone watching on TV at the time saw this and saw him go flying and said, uh, hello, where's the foul? Well, the NBA says, yes, that should have been a foul. Mark Gasol should have had two free throws, which if you put one and one and two and two together, that could have given the Raptors the lead. They may have won the championship based on that blown call. My question is this. Why does the NBA bother at this point? All it's doing is antagonizing people now. Well, you know, Scott, it's funny because uh, we've had, you know, we have a friend, obviously, you know, and Ron Foxcroft, who, you know, for many years was in the NBA um, evaluating referees and officials and at that time, his job was to basically analyze every single whistle, every single foul that has been blown. Now, for fans that don't know, there's something called the two-minute report that the NBA has on its website that after every, you know, the next day, you can look at the final two minutes of every game and they will evaluate whether the the call was good or not, very much like you're speaking of. And I think they do this in terms of full transparency. I'm wondering if that full transparency, because obviously I don't know which, you know, if it was the sun or the star or whatever that sort of really went wild with it on, a, on the, you know, the downtown Toronto newspapers. And, whoops, basically saying that, you know, the, the rappers have been robbed. I'm wondering if having that two-minute report's even worth it because this isn't just this game. This happens in every single game. We could write an article or complain about a call for every game in the regular season and every game in the postseason. Well, beyond that, what I don't really understand about this is, to my understanding, a basket in the last minute of a game still counts for two points and a basket in the first minute of the game counts for two points. And... I guarantee you there were fouls that were missed early in the game on both sides. So by putting this two-minute report out, by highlighting a call that was missed in the last minute, it makes everybody think the Raptors have been jobbed. They may have gotten away with five fouls earlier on, or Golden State may have got a... Why is it just the last minute? Why why is that more important? Well, I, I don't know. I think that's when, you know, because for the most people that are especially newer to basketball right now, and you hear this among many people that aren't massive basketball fans, that you only really have to watch the, the last quarter or the last half, half of a quarter. Last two minutes. Right, and, you know, and, and in some cases the last two minutes. But I would say to you this, I would say to you this, Scott, I mean, and, and for all those people that believe the Raptors have been jobbed and all that kind of thing, you look at the game sheet and – the Golden State Warriors in that game went to the free throw line 
14 times. The Raptors went 27 times. Now, are Golden State so much of a hack, hacky team that, you know, a cheap team or a rough, so much rougher than the, than the Raptors that there would be that kind of discrepancy? If anyone should be complaining right now, it should be the Golden State Warriors and their fan base for saying, how can there be such a discrepancy in the fouls in that situation? It just doesn't, to me, what happens when you put out this report, and look, I, I applaud the transparency, but I would prefer to have transparency for the full game rather than a, a little tiny piece that's taken out of context. Because now, if the Raptors go on to lose this series, if they lose the next two games, Forever around here, it will be the argument that it's the Brett Hall toe in the crease kind of thing that the Raptors had this stolen from them, and you've you've created this your own problem for yourself with this. This is this is something that you have done, and I don't see the need for it. unless you're going to do the whole game and say, okay, you know what, we missed five calls here, we missed seven calls here. Uh, to me, it's 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 a waste, and all it does is detract from everything else. But, but here's the thing. I mean, it, can we not go back to a couple of other games and said, look, uh, uh, you know, look at that two-minute report and say, oh, this call was missed by, you know, the Raptors actually should have been called for a foul yeah, here yeah. and there. And, 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 the, and the Golden State Warriors say, you know what, yeah, we won by two, but we should have won by four, or at least I had the opportunity to win by four. By, you know, like, I just think this is... Uh, if you're going to do this, like, you got to do something God, about it. You've watched this. You've watched this sport. You and I watch this sport at, at close range for many, many years. Basketball may be the toughest sport. I know hockey's tough because of the speed and you're on ice, but really, basketball may be the most difficult sport to officiate. There are going to be missed calls. Sure, there are. And but if you're going to put out a report like this, to me, the only reason you do this is if you're going to do something about it, and you're not going to say. Before we start game six, Marc Gasol gets his two free throws and we're setting the clock to 59 seconds. And if the Raptors hold on at that point, they win the championship. You're not going to do that. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a moot point and it just seems like all it does is create frustration and anger in people. I don't see the need for it, honestly. Let me throw you this and you can chew on this. Did the, now, this, isn't a, this two minute report isn't something that's been going on for you know, 20, 30 years. Would you believe that maybe that this was created to eliminate all thoughts of you know officials leaning one way or another due to the Donahue situation of course, of many course. years ago? Yes, of and course. That's the only reason why this is you know has you know is public because there are there are no other leagues that I know of, professional or amateur, that publicly analyze its officials and give you a detailed report. Oh, baseball hides it. Baseball, Angel Hernandez, who everybody knows is is an official, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, just type in Angel Hernandez, and there are, you, you could be online for about 12 hours watching highlights of his calls or non-calls. Him and Cito Gasson never saw the eye to eye. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, like, it, and baseball goes to great lengths to not say anything that their officials have ever done anything wrong. The umpires, if they get suspended, you never even hardly hear about it. Uh, let me jump to something else quickly because uh, the w- Women's World Cup is on right now and Canada's in it and Canada opened their tournament by uh, winning one nothing in their first game over Cameroon, but nobody's talking about Canada. They're all talking about the women, the U.S. team because they beat Thailand, which is... I mean, they you different teams qualify, different countries qualify from different regions, and not every region is equal, and they came out of probably the weakest region in the world, and they're not a good team. 
and the U.S. pumped them 13-0. And as for the score, the seedings in the elimination round are dictated in some cases by goal differential. So you, you have to keep scoring. That, that's the rules. I don't blame the Americans for scoring. They, you have to do that. But it was the fact that when they're up 8 nothing, 9 nothing, 10 nothing, 11 nothing, they are celebrating like they just scored the golden goal in extra time has created a lot of angst and a lot of criticism from people. Uh, what's your, what's, where do you go on that one? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to, the criticism is fair. And, and I could care less about what the United States say in this situation because, uh, yes, in these worldwide competitions, gold, uh, goal uh, differential can be crucial when setting up your playoff rounds, deciding possible tiebreakers, you know, not just in the first round, but in the second round, maybe even the medal rounds in terms of your possible matchups. So in this situation, now, it's not the Team USA's fault that they're facing the 34th ranked nope. team. It's not. That's just the way it goes. As we see in soccer many times in each one of these groups, sometimes there's four teams. Generally, two are rather competitive, and the other two are developing countries. And I think there's 24 teams in this year's World Cup. And there's actually thoughts of moving to 32, which I think would be a big mistake. But that's another story. So p- piling on the 13 goals does sort of suck in some ways because someone had 13 goals scored against them and didn't score one. But as you talked about the celebrations, I thought were extremely over the top. Was it an amazing accomplishment that, um, Morgan scored five goals. It's never been done before. Absolutely. I think that's a great accomplishment. Good for her. Now, you know, at the end of the day, when she looks back at the end of the, her career, you know, someone might say, well, it was against Thailand. You know, but, and that, you could take that with a grain of salt. But it was, you know, Megan Rapino, who's played in multiple World Cups, who's scored 45 goals in her career, celebrating, running down the field, doing a slide on the wet grass, kicking up in the air like she had scored her very first goal to me, was, I just, I think it's, a, it's just a lack of class. And here's one thing that really taking it to the next level, Scott, that really upsets me, or, or I think is really unfair. The U.S. soccer team are the first ones to say that they are setting an example, that they are role models. And I don't think that is what you want to teach young women soccer players. I think you want them to, to, to show them the same to the, the determination to be number one like they are. But I don't think you teach them that type of celebration in a blowout situation where the game is long. It was decided. classless. It was they, classless. They scored, I believe, Scott, you'd have to check back, but I believe they scored five goals inside the final 16 minutes of the game. But again, I'm not going to go to the goal scoring. No, that's fine. That's fine. But when you do that, you know, what's really interesting, I went back and I looked at the highlights. If you remember in 2014 when Germany played Brazil in the most humiliating game ever for Brazil probably in the World Cup, in men's World Cup. And Germany won 7-1. to And I went back and watched the highlights. And after it got to be 4-1, to when Germany scored, they put their head down and they turned and just walked back to midfield. Because you don't, you've already, by the score, you've humiliated your opponent. You don't need to step on their throat and run your cleats through their face, which is essentially what you're doing. But what was even more infuriating to me about this, Baba, honestly, was the immediate default position that seemed to come out from a lot of corners that said, it's sexism that you would even say this about these women. You would never say this about a man running up the score or embarrassing his his opponent. And, you know, 
I'm sorry, if that's going to be your default position, that if we criticize women for anything, it's sexist without even contemplating whether or not it's a legitimate criticism, that's lazy, that's unhelpful, and that diminishes the real cases of sexism that exist that we do want to deal with. That, that to me, is the most ridiculous, nonsensical, weak excuse you could come up with that we're only doing this because they were women. Because I can guarantee you that if it was a men's team score winning a game 13 nothing and celebrating like that, they would be getting just as much crap. Absolutely. And I mean, for, for context, Abby Wamba, who is the, uh, the all-time leading goal scorer in women's soccer, that, you know, Christine Sinclair is four goals behind her, you know, the fine striker for Canada. Uh, Abby Wamba is, you know, she's, she's, she's won multiple World Cups, multiple competitions with Team USA, uh, role model. You can go on and on with all the achievements that she's had. And she's the one that posted that this morning about why, you know, it should be okay for USA to celebrate and why they should, it's okay to score so many goals. And she's the one in the final line of her tweet did say, you know, you would never say this about a men's team, period. And, and I, again, I, found, I was offended by that. I, I, I'm not going to lie. And I'm all for women's rights. Uh, you, if you watch me on this broadcast at CHCH, I, I highlight women's sport is whenever I can, um, all the time, as much as I can. And, and I have nothing against women's sports and, and, and would love to support it. But for someone of her stature to go to use, you know, whether it's the gender card or the race card or anything like that, I thought was extremely shocking, unprofessional. To, how could you go there? First of all, no men's teams ever won 13 to nothing in the World Cup. So there's no precedent set for her to even say that. Do we not have a case just recently in the last month or two with hockey where Don Cherry called out the Carolina Hurricanes for being a bunch of jerks for the stuff they were doing when they were celebrating after wins? We have we have cases all the time in baseball well, where guys are criticized. Sorry to interrupt, Scott, but interesting enough, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes did that in front of their home fans after the opposing team left the ice. Yep. Never rubbed it in the faces of another team. No, it, it, look, it, it is, and you can even make the case, I think, that in certain circumstances you may overreact and do something hyper-emotional celebrating, like Jose Bautista with the home run and the bat flip. When you're in a highly emotional, highly competitive game with a team that's pushing you to your limits and the thing you've just done is spectacular, but when you are clobbering a team 13 nothing. That to me, that doesn't qualify at all. Not if if this same if what's her name Rapino had celebrated the way she did after she scored a goal in extra time to win against one of the world's top teams. No problem. No problem. That's not this. No, and and you know what? (laughs) I know we're really piling on this team here, but the head coach Jill Ellis celebrating on the sideline as well. I mean, you set the tone. You set the example as the manager or the head coach of these teams. And again, for her to behave that, that way, you know, in fact, I did read, she, she was crying. She was, she was sobbing. She was so emotional by this amazing game that the Team USA played against, again, 34th-ranked Thailand. Up next, uh, I believe on Sunday, 39th-ranked Chile. We so, will see. We well, will see. <clears throat> we we got to go, but we will see if the Americans truly think that they did nothing wrong because the score will probably be something similar. 
And if they truly believe they did nothing wrong, they will celebrate this way again when they run those scores up. If they don't, it's going to tell you that they know that they have screwed up. And I'm telling you, they are not going to do this again. I'll be shocked if they do it again. I agree with you. But what they also have to realize right now, Scott, is this team, you know, who, you know, lost their last world competition in, I believe, in a, in a first playoff match against Sweden, which was a huge shocker, that right now they have a huge target on their backs right now. And when they play the much better teams in the medal rounds, you know what they say about karma sometimes. I just saw a great tweet that someone sent out saying, if this had been hockey, I would have sent out my fourth line to deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> Send out the Thai enforcers to get them. Oh, wouldn't that have been something? That would have been, I, I don't know that Thailand has enforcers on their women's soccer no, team. No, but, but, they would have, but Jill Ellis and Team USA and the whole entire organization would have said, how unsportsmanlike of the Thai. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And it's... I just, we got to go, as I say, but the fact that as you pointed out, and it's a great point that you made, that this is a team that very quickly positions itself as a role model. I don't know that if they were the parents of a girl who was, or a boy who was playing in a youth tournament and was being beaten 13, nothing. And the other team was celebrating like it was winning a world cup. I'm not entirely sure they would be quite as thrilled and quite as open to the celebration thing as they were. Just saying. And if you're a role model, that trickles down. You're talking about kids. And if that's what you think kids should be doing in their games when it's 13 nothing, you apparently have taken one too many balls to the head on a header because that is just completely misguided. Amen, brother. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can see him tonight at 11 o'clock. Uh, and now, will you be talking to your buddies? You've got people all over the world here, it seems. you got uh, Phil Perkins is down in Oakland, and you got them. Is he going to be on tonight? You're going to be talking to Oakland tonight? Uh, uh, yeah, he'll be gauging fan response and how many Canadians are down there. Um, unfortunately, I don't think he'll be, he'll be allowed in the arena. But uh... Well, no, because he'll be intoxicated by then. Phil Perkins, designated <laughs> celebrator for CHC. He is a bit of a fanboy. I'll give you, I, I will have to admit to that. Bubba O'Neill, thanks as always. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.